welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, The Thrill, for the week of June 5th. On this week's show, School of Hard Pop. We've learned a lot from our education, but let's be honest, we've probably learned more from movies, TV, and music, so we'll talk about what we've learned over our years on this earth. Then, The Wolf Pack Howls. We'll talk to the director of The Wolf Pack, an amazing documentary that took the Sundance Festival by storm about six brothers who weren't allowed outside, and therefore learned about the world through movies, TV, and music. And Wherefore Art Thou Young People? Theatre can't shake the sense that it's a remnant of a stodgy past, so what are theatres doing to try to fix that? We'll talk to Anthony Simolino, the artistic director of the Stratford Festival, to talk about what they're doing to get out that damn spot. I'm Adrian. I'm Emma. And I'm Julia. And this is The Thrill. Pop culture can seem like a frivolous thing, but for many, it's a way to find a community and a kind of education unto itself. And because we'll be talking to a director whose movie is about kids who learned literally everything they know through pop culture, we thought we'd talk about what we've learned in the way of life lessons, but also practical skills. Uh, Julia, do you want to start us off? What have you What have you learned through pop culture? Well, um, let's see. On the practical side of things, I learned about opera through Bugs Bunny, right. the Kill the Wabbit Wagnerian opera, you may remember. Um, I learned from Golden Girls that cheesecake helps diffuse all manner of crises. Friends taught me uh, that on a break meant very different things for each half of a couple on the rocks. Team Ross. And okay, and uh, Lucas Arts graphic adventure games like Monkey Island and Indiana Jones: The Fate of Atlantis taught me practical problem-solving skills like how to fix a problem with the items at my immediate disposal. <laughs> And Saved by the Bell put the fear of God in me when it came to caffeine pills. Anyone who knows Saved by the Bell will know that very terrifying scene, that moment of excess and friendship in the famous I'm so excited, I'm so scared scene. Uh, in terms of life lessons, that, that's harder to pin down. I mean, it permeates everything. It's hard to parse out where, what you learn from pop culture. But um, I will say that uh, hip-hop had an immense cultural uh, impact on me. I was about 15 when I first discovered it, and as a white, middle-class kid that grew up in a fairly idyllic place with people that were just like me, it exposed me to, um, really for the first time, to both isolated and sy- systemic racism. I didn't even know what that was. Uh, I'm thinking of, like, Grandmaster Flash and the Message and Public Enemy, uh, Fight the Power, Black Stars, These in the Night. Give me the fortune, keep the fame, said my man Lewis. I agreed, know what he mean, because we live the truest lie. I asked him why we follow the law of the bluest eye. He looked at me, he thought about it, was like I'm clueless. Why? Question was and then this led me down other paths of social studies uh, that were vastly different from my own, which became a lifelong passion. So also the lyricism of, of hip-hop um, is just unparalleled. And for a word nerd like me, that's heaven. But uh, what about you guys? What did you learn? Well, I would say that I learned about the Bible through popular Mm. culture. Oh, yes, your favorite Um, movie. (laughs) My favorite film is The Ten Commandments, not Exodus, the remake. Uh, And The Ten Commandments, I think, was made in 1956. Um, But it's this epic film, and I was obsessed with it as a kid, and my family would watch it at Passover, it was always on TV. Those who will not live by the law (laughs) shall die by the law. And for my whole life, um, I had assumed that it was an exact replica of the text in the Bible, but just made for film. Until I wrote a column a few years ago in which I referenced the 
uh, story of Exodus um, because it was a Passover themed column. And then uh, through fact checking, it was revealed that I did not know the story at all. <laughs> and that the whole time I had assumed that, you know, that this love story between that with uh, Nefertiri, who didn't even live in, I don't think, in the same century as <laughs> as Moses, um, <laughs> never happened that the actual, um, you know, all this stuff with Ramses, it was not an exodus, that they, there wasn't this, you know, feud between brothers and love triangle. And so they had to I, sex it up for film. I came to realize that all of my, all you know, everything I held dear about the Bible was not true. And it wasn't nearly as interesting as it was as it was portrayed on film. Even it, I was also into Ben-Hur found out that they took some liberties there too. Oh, boy. So I would say that I it was informative and educational in the sense that it made me interested in religion and I left it. I used to go to a Jewish private school from kindergarten to grade two and I was really bored by it so my parents let me leave. But that's sort of how I kept the flame going as I was really into these <laughs> movies. But I guess um, it's a double-edged sword because a lot of my information was actually false. So what did you learn through pop culture, Adrian? Uh, I guess I'll start with like the the practical lessons, which is uh, when, back when I was a kid, one of the my favorite shows inexplicably was Hysteria, which was this kind of like Animaniacs cartoon style uh, show that was that featured like Abraham Lincoln and Napoleon and was all about like history. Uh, and, and it was like mildly funny, but everything I know from history is more than a little bit from Hysteria. Uh, I learned a lot from there. Uh, the little clip, How a Bill Becomes a Law, uh, is a thing that uh, has ex- gone, rocks. yeah, has gone well beyond, uh, you know, the age that it comes from. The I think 70s, I know, I think, is yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think I know a lot less about like Canadian politics uh, because Schoolhouse Rock was just more of a thing here. I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's um, uh, as far as practical skills, Anchorman taught me that I shouldn't drink milk in a, when it's very hot out. Uh, their commercials taught me not to put it in my mouth. The it being often uh, such things as candy and scissors. Uh, you know, just things not to put in my mouth. Don't you put it in your mouth. Don't you put it in your mouth. Don't you stuff it in your face. Don't stuff it in your face. Though it might look good to eat. Though it might look good to eat. And it might look good to taste. And it might look good to taste. You could get sick. Yuck. Real quick. Documentaries, you know, everything I know about baseball is 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 from Ken Burns' knowledge. Scooby-Doo taught me always to be suspicious of the least suspicious-looking person who has the most backstory and has has the most lines. That has really helped me in my in my ongoing journalism. Um, but yeah, as far as like life, uh, as as far as life stuff goes. Um, you know, it's a lot of stuff, especially from your childhood, right? The Goofy movie is a movie that not a lot of people think about. But for me, is this is like how I relate to my dad in a lot of ways. You know, and I, when I think about fatherhood, the Goofy movie is about uh, Goofy as a father to his son, Max. And the two are sort of equally embarrassed about each other. But Goofy is really desperate to to get his son back. And it's this really like heartfelt story of, of, of like a son trying to become his own person while his dad still loves him. And it's very it's still like what I think of when I think of fatherhood um 
the uh, Scott Pilgrim comics are a, a, a series that I read about once a year. Uh, Brian Lee O'Malley's, which has been adapted to a movie, of course. Um, it, it taught me how to be proud of of the place I live. It was set in Toronto, and it, it was it's such a cool depiction of Toronto. Uh, it also told me how like perfect love can be super imperfect, um, and. Uh, and the writing of Chuck Klosterman uh, was really important to me because it taught me that there was interest in talking about pop culture and like the stuff we're doing right now to the point that maybe I could have in my career be in it. Uh, so that stuff was really important to me. Do you ever find that there are places or cities that you feel you came to understand better through pop culture or maybe that were portrayed to you in a fictitious way? Like for me... New York City was a big one where yeah. I would see it in movies and there would be all of these alleyways and when I actually went to New York I thought this doesn't look like New York and then I realized <laughs> that a lot of the movies that I had watched that took place in New York were just filmed in Toronto yeah so I came from Toronto to New York and was thinking like this isn't how New York is supposed to look. Yeah. Has really... there been any city that has been helped more by pop culture than in New York than New York City? I feel like like my, one of my favorite movies is Manhattan, and it's just like oh, this beautiful black and white film uh, that Woody Allen made, and and then you go there like oh, I guess it's like not like that at all, <laughs> and certainly anymore. Maybe there was at one time, but man, did that place get romanticized? Paris, I think, also has benefited a great deal from, from pop culture. Mm-hmm. This is like obviously the big cities, but you know, then Toronto, like we often get the shaft. I mean, Montreal, another, you know, major We're city. We're often that... in movies and things put in place yeah, for other right. cities. Well, yeah. I mean, that's changing, but the show Suits, I think it is. Yeah. I saw a few oh, yeah. episodes, which is filmed in Toronto and you can see Beck taxis mm-hmm. and oh, like, yeah. streetcars. Yeah. And Suicide Squad is being filmed yeah. right now. That's supposed to be Gotham City, so. Uh, you know, pop culture, it also taught me that, um, Pop culture references are a code that can be used to seek out people who have common, you know, and you can, guys can land on some kind of common ground. I think the most specific example I can think of for that kind of thing is d- dating. Like, you know, when you first start to go on a date with somebody and you're like, oh, I, I love Johnny Cash. Do you love Johnny Cash? You know, like, I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah. Do you love that? And then you just, and I think it's an interesting way to uh, superficially kind of root out who, who might be worth your time. Or maybe that's just how I use it. No, of course. That makes <laughs> but, perfect sense. Yeah, for a romantic connection, if you like the same things, right? So, but um, it's oh. usually also if you don't like certain things. Yeah. Like you'll right. find it has, that. It's the same thing, right? Because then you like you can cross it off your list. You engage. You, you but discuss. But a little pop culture reference, uh, reference uh, repartee is good. But I think ultimately um, too much of it is just like narcissism. It makes me think of um, music snobs in High Fidelity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember when they based the likability of yeah. someone based uh, solely on their taste in music. Mm-hmm. And once you get past the first layer of pop culture loves, um, if you don't like have the same value system, <laughs> then your pop culture loves are probably not enough to sustain your relationship. But actually, life taught me that lesson, not pop culture. <laughs> Well, but, I di- but I digress. <laughs> but I don't feel like pop cult like you have to necessarily have the same pop culture interests as say even your friends, but also the people that you date or get married to. I don't think that uh, you know I, I have it happens to be a lot of my like closest friends do, but at the same time I feel like you know there people can open you up to other things. To other Absolutely, interests. but it's it's when you're first starting to meet somebody like when you first start a new school, a new job, try, you know trying yeah. to find out if there's a if you you should date this person. It's a good code. Mm-hmm. I feel like your dislikes are almost more important than your likes, though. Hmm. Elaborate. Like, I think that even for finding a romantic partner, 
Like it's more important, I think, that you cringe at the same things than that you laugh at the same things. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And if you can explain it, right? Because like if I'll talk to somebody and they really dislike something that I really like, I want to know why they like really dislike it. And if they can back it up, I'm like, oh, that's like really interesting. I've never thought Mm -hmm. of it that way. At the same time, too, I think like, you know, we we have all this criticism right now, especially of pop culture, of the idea of a monoculture that everyone likes the same thing. Right. But it's but it comes back to what you're saying. Right. The idea of community. And there is this this uh, like pop culture as shibboleth. Right. Is these are the things that we say to each other because this is what we all know. No, you know, the, the things that we just went around in the room and talked about, we all kind of were like, oh, yeah, like, you know, whatever. Like, you know, when you're talking connection. Exactly. It's right. It's a fast way to create connection. Yeah. And so and so there is, you know, that kind of there is a very serious value, I think, to pop culture that people don't often know. Not just the idea of, you know, filling in uh, things that school didn't may not have taught us or our parents may not have taught us, but also to interact with each other. Is there is there anything that you guys think that pop culture didn't teach us enough about that, like uh, that filled that filled in? didn't fill in enough holes. Um, I'm specifically thinking of, like, um, love. Like, very specifically, I wish that, like, pop culture told me how relationships worked more. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of things, like how Emma was talking about, like, New York and these specific expectations you might have for a city. And you're like, I hope it looks like my favorite movie that's set in New York or Manhattan, as you mentioned, the Woody Allen movie. But I think there's just all education when it comes to, like, learning about something through a book or a screen uh, or a song only has so much can only teach you so much. I mean, obviously the 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 only thing that can really fill in those gaps is experience. Yeah, but but that's my point is that like you know for myself specifically, you know, I grew up in a household where there just was not discussion about sex or any mm-hmm. of that, and so a lot of what I know about relationships is is truly from uh from pop culture and from movies and TV specifically. And if you look at those things, they don't really tell you how to like get from point A to point B. It's just sort of like I learned a lot of it you from my friends. Person. You know, yeah. just us talking. I also think chatting. though that it can be empowering in a kind of um like security blanket and I mean that in a good way like I was talking about 13 before um, which is a movie uh, about two teenage girls who are 13 years old and there's a scene in that movie where well in the movie they're like they party a lot they're very wild and there's a scene where they kiss and when I was in the ninth grade um, I had a sleepover party and everybody kissed at that party after we watched 13 and I feel like because they were doing it in 13, it was okay for us to it do it. Gave you permission. Yeah, it gave us permission. Like, mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. homo. Like, the girls in <laughs> right. 13 do it, and they're just having fun. And we fun, just want to be cool so like we them. We can do it, too. Mm-hmm. Sure. But I think that that's a positive. Like, you could look at that and say, oh, that's terrible, you know, negative it's influence. But I think it sometimes it gives you kind of creative license. It lets you feel comfortable. On life. <laughs> yeah, creative license on life. We'd love to hear what our listeners have to say about what they learned from pop culture. Uh, tweet us at McLean's Mag. Uh, write in a comment on our post. I think everyone has some interesting stuff that they personally learned from pop culture, so we'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So we just spoke about some lessons that we learned uh, from pop culture, but a new documentary offers up an extreme case of that. Wolfpack profiles a group of six brothers whose father refused to let them outside their New York City apartment, and whose only access to the outside world was movies and pop culture. So they spent their days recreating their favorite films, running roughshod over their little apartment, and eventually learning what it's like outside. In the summer, there was more chance of us getting out. Sometimes we go out once a year. This is like 3D, man. It's very fresh out here. And 
And one particular year, we never got out at all. So movies opened up another world. If I didn't have movies, life would be pretty boring. Theirs is a remarkable, beautiful story that's become a critical hit, going from little independent student film to winning the documentary Grand Jury Prize at Sundance this year. Crystal Mazel is the director, and she joins us on the phone. Thanks for joining us, Crystal. Cool. So uh, the best place to start, I think, is uh, by talking about how you came across the brothers, uh, sort of how you met them. Can you tell us uh, a bit about that? Absolutely. So I was walking down First Avenue in New York City when these kids, like, they ran past me, and something about them just really caught my eye. Maybe it was because they're dressed uh, just like uh, reservoir dogs, mm-hmm. they had long hair, sunglasses. And um, I instinctually just ran after them. And we met up at a crosswalk, and I asked them where they're from, and they said Delancey Street, which was a couple of streets down. And, um, I, you know, I'd never seen them around, so I was like, really, Are you, you're from down there? And they, um, Govinda then asked me, he said, uh, you know, what is it that you do for a living? And I told him that I was a filmmaker, and they got really excited. And he said, oh, we're interested in getting into the business of filmmaking. And that was just really the start of a friendship that, um, you know, consisted of, like, hanging out in the park and looking at cameras and, you know, really... Really um, kind of getting to know each other through a similar interest of you know, cinema and filmmaking and movies. Uh, was it hard to gain their trust? or I mean, the way you sort of sounds like, uh, it sounds like you guys just sort of hung out and, and next thing you know, you guys were friends. Yeah, I mean, it was just like an organic process. Like I, you know, with any new friend that you make, it starts out, you know, it started out slow and we'd hang out a few times and, um you know, eventually they invited me over to their house, and that was about, you know, five months down the line, and we hung out, and I got to see their insular world, and that was, you know, you know, just like little clues here and there would kind of give me, like, a backstory of, of like, you know, their upbringing, but, um, you know, I, I know, I had no idea what was happening in their story, when I first met them, you know, it took me like, you know, probably a year down the line for me to like realize that they had to break out. I'm interested in in kind of what Adrian talked about, talked about, about getting to know them a little bit better, especially when you went over to their house and you started to really understand more what their circumstances were, about how you got them to, how you got to break through to them and to kind of get these brothers to open up about their story, including, of course, the the pain and the trauma that they've suffered. And as um, a group who has been isolated and um, oppressed, you know, basically just locked away with thousands of movies all these years, it's clear in the film that they don't really know who they are because, I mean, how how could they? They didn't really have much of a, a mirror to reflect themselves against in society. And um, they speak in movie quotes and pop culture references a lot in the movie. And I'm thinking of this one instance where one of the brothers adopted a kind of an English accent seemingly out of nowhere to protest mm-hmm. going into the ocean with his brothers or like throughout the film, there's a gratuitous, almost kind of comical insertion of swearing that young men often use as like a symbol to appear tough. Like I'm thinking there's a scene in an orchard where one of them says, this is the best damn apple I ever damn tasted. So what I'm I'm getting at is like, how did you wade through all those pop culture references, all of those things that made them appear 
as if they were trying to be normal and get to the meat of of what it was that was really happening to them. Well, again, I think it was just a very organic process that, you know, I wasn't trying to get to something because I didn't know what it was. I just was there um, existing with them and, you know, capturing their lives. And and they just started um, to reveal to you kind yeah, of like... I think, I think that I think that, you know, it, it was maybe therapeutic in some way where they, you know, they wanted to talk about their past and um, unload and um, be able to have a soundboard for their life. I'm wondering, um, because they were sort of cooped up for so long and the, the rules surrounding, you know, when and how often they could leave were so strict, um, was there a lot of resistance at first for you to make this film? Like, how did you approach them and, and say, I want to make this film? And, and what was their reaction? No, there was no, there was, but when I, so when I came into this story, there was a complete, like, there was, they had completely taken over the power of the household and they were just doing what they felt like doing and they had the freedom to do that. And, you know, their father, their father was almost defeated. So, um, there wasn't like really a time where I said, you know, I did ask them, I said, you know, I, I would love to make a documentary about you guys. And, you know, at that point it was just like the process of, of creating things and they're all, they're all into the idea instantly. So there was never there really wasn't ever anything that um, got in the way of this film being made. It just was a very natural, organic process. Yeah, and we just talked on the podcast earlier a bit about uh, like the lessons that we've learned through pop culture, and, and that idea is really writ large in, in such a remarkable way in the movie. The idea that pop culture can be a kind of salvation that can offer lessons uh, that you t- sort of take with you over the course of your life. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about, uh, you know, you, I guess you sort of talked about it a little bit here, but what did pop culture do for the brothers? What, why was it so important to them? Well, I think that, you know, through their world of movies, they were able to... Um, you know, they started doing these reenactments that let them kind of act out these characters and, like, you know, I think they were able to, like, feel powerful when they had no power. And um, I think that that was, like, naturally therapeutic. So I think that, you know, pop culture had some sort of um, influence on them that way to, you know, keep them sane, so to say. Mm-hmm. And, and there's also this there's kind of an interesting argument in a way uh, th- there's this conversation that we always have uh, about the idea of pop culture uh, is bad because it can produce like you know the representations of violence and, and you know bloody images uh, can really affect uh, children but and yeah, here we have people who literally have been hermetically sealed inside and they're watching these you know bloody movies the Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and, and they are they're, you know it's as easy as saying yeah that's totally different there's like that there's two different worlds here and I found that kind of remarkable the idea that that representation uh, was so easy for them to parse through despite how little uh, knowledge of even the outside world there was I think when they first started going out, there was a lot of references, but then they started having their own experiences, and, you know, that kind of became what they're after is, you know, you know, going to the beach or normal things that people do when they go outside. They were hungry to do those things, and, um, you know, and that became their new, like, salvation. Um, so... 
Can you tell us a little bit about where they are now? Like, have they moved out? Are they thriving? Like, what are their plans? What's their relationship with their father? So many questions at the end of that movie. Absolutely. So the boys are now, um, um, Govinda's moved out. He's like, a, he's a camera person on, um, he's like a, a camera assistant on commercials and documentaries and short films. And he also just actually shot as a DP his first feature and he's only 22 years old. Pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Maquinda is working at a production company and short, um, shooting his own short films. Uh, Narayana is an activist, and he's working with a, with an organization called Nyberg, and they just won the fracking campaign. And uh, Bhagavan is a yoga instructor, and he also is a teacher at a hip-hop dance conservatory. And the two youngest ones um, who have changed their names to Eddie and Glenn are are very much into music. So that's the direction that they've been going. Do any of them still live with their parents? They all live with their parents besides Govinda. Govinda's moved out. Right. Okay. Do any of them have girlfriends? Uh, yeah. Bhagavan actually has a girlfriend. Oh. Cool. <laughs> you do find yourself rooting for, for I guess, all of them at, Absolutely. By, the, by the end of the movie for sure. I love all of them equally. So, <laughs> and in a way, I mean, you mentioned before too that it's it's it, to me it's not a surprise that uh, in some ways that they have found success in these creative fields because, in a way, the the idea of like someone who uh, you know talks in pop culture references, steeped in pop culture to the point of being uh, seen as like kind of a nerd, has become this kind of identity that that works in, in many fields, right? I, in a way, like I saw the the scene at the end where uh, one of them is talking about Game of Thrones and how it's like, just like, oh, I, I binge watched that Yo, in three Breaking days. Breaking Bad. Yeah, or, yeah, and it was just like, well, that's that's great. Like, uh, you know, it But makes... that's what we, I mean, we've yeah. talked about binge watching. That's a mm-hmm. pretty normal thing to do. Yeah, but it's just the idea that, that though they have, you know, they're still figuring out in a lot of ways what, you know, the outside world means, they they have, there's a place for them still, which which is kind of amazing, right? Oh yeah, I mean that was like when I when I first started hanging out with them, they would, you know, when I McQuinda asked me, he said, McQuinda says, you know, I'm hanging out with people, I never know what to say, and I was like, well, I said, I asked him, I was like, well, what what is it that you know the most about? And he said, movies. I said, well, what you know, what could you talk about with people because everybody's into movies? And he's like, oh, I can ask them what their favorite film was. And so that's like that was like always his first question with people. And he'd be like, "So, uh, what's your favorite film?" Mm-hmm. And then that would start a conversation. Yeah, that's, that's often how people interact with each other when they first meet each other. Now, yeah. exactly. I just have one other question that's sort of off topic, but going back to the relationship with their parents um, throughout the film, I kept thinking at the end of this, somebody's going to get arrested. Like, there's documented abuse, or at least like ample evidence that abuse has taken place. Did you get a sense when you were making the film that um, that the boys were, in a sense, protective of their parents, like were very angry with them, but also I got a sense at least that near the end that they were protective of them, even though they've suffered a great deal of abuse? Yeah, I mean, they, at the end of the day, like, they were, they were being educated. Um, you know, by the time I got into the story there was nothing to that alarmed me that you know that I had to call the authorities and the authorities had come in and they had you know family union was um working with them and they were in therapy and um 
I mean, I think by the time I was into the story, like they were, you know, moving on with their lives. Well, thanks so much, uh, Crystal, for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. All the world's a stage, to thine own self be true. You likely remember these famous words, and not just because you were forced to read them in high school. It's from the big guy, Willie Shakes. Mr. Shakespeare. If there's anyone who lives with the words of that genius rattling around in his head, it's Antony Simolino, the artistic director of the Stratford Festival. Last year, he helped create the Stratford Festival HD series, an annual series of films of Stratford Productions, that will then be distributed in movie houses around the world. Last year, they released three, including King Lear with Comfiore. Now, our joy, although our last and least, to whose young love the vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be interested. He's joining us now. Last year, Stratford committed to producing films of three shows each season with the ultimate goal of filming all of Shakespeare's plays. I think last year was King Lear, King John, uh, Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to spearhead this project? Well, I wanted to... Over the years, we've recorded different performances, but we've never done enough of them, and we didn't have control of the process. So, you know, I remember it was the last time that Bill Hutt was going to do The Tempest, and I was trying to persuade the CBC to, to record it, and they didn't. And I, I felt like that had to stop. I felt like there was this these great performances done by these extraordinary Canadian actors at this theatre, uh, where, because we don't have as developed a film or television industry in this country, some of the finest work done by these artists, I'm talking about people like, you know, Kate Reed or, or uh, Douglas Rain, were done on the Stratford Festival stage. I wanted to get their work out. I wanted to record an entire canon of Shakespeare plays done by this magnificent company. And I wanted it to be spread out around the world so more people knew about the Stratford Festival. And I wanted to have it over time so that we would have a library 10 and 20 years from now, we could really get an overview of the growth and development of this company. But I wonder if, if, if something's lost in the transfer. I, well, I actually saw the King Lear one, and I thought it was great, but there is this the sense that you are watching a screen, which is so different from the theater experience. You know, you're Absolutely. there, you're going, you're there, you're breathing the same air as the actors, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but when you, go see, when you go see, like, a film version, an HD film of it, it is different because you're seeing different angles, there's different kinds of shots, like there's one shot, there's two shots, there's focus, there's close-ups. Um, it is different, right? Is something lost in, in, in the potential transfer of, you know, look, digitizing? Look. There's nothing like live performance, absolutely nothing like live performance. There's something uh, very strange, almost mystical about the fact that you're seeing a real person going through something in front of you. Even though you know they're not actually going through it, there's a strange form of belief that comes in when you are watching a live person. Kids, when they're four years old, they role play. No one tells them to do it. No one tells them how to do it. They just do it. We're hardwired to do this. So there is something uh, really amazing about live performance that can never be replicated. However, there are some things about being able to record a performance. Uh, a, we have it forever. Uh, B, it can be broadcast around the world. C, we can actually in some ways, you know, get, as you said, more camera angles. We can, we can get in close up and see a person's face from like two inches away. We can have a mic up right up to their face so they can whisper and everything is there. So there are, there are offsets. I'm also interested in the idea that, of course, theater used to be one of the most dominant forms of entertainment. Everybody went to the theater. And now a lot of people get their entertainment through a screen. So do you think that this kind of new mode of distribution of theater will kind of help keep it relevant? 
Well, like I said, I don't think I think the theater is uh, something that will always exist um, because there's something just uh, there's an event there's a a sense of unpredictability to live performance, which is what we thrive on. You go see a movie, cars will blow up, people will run around, but you will never sense that somebody might get hurt who shouldn't get hurt. When you're in the theater, you don't know what's going to happen next. Actually, the actors don't know what's going to happen next. And the obstacle becomes the path. Weird things can take place that then change the nature of the performance. And audiences love that. So there's that, in addition to there being this kind of almost chemical sense that you're in front of a real body acting something out, even though we all know that they're really not that person, there's something very primitive and powerful about that. There's also the, sen- the circus sense of what will happen next. I don't think that's going to disappear. In terms of the, the recordings, well, there's a whole bunch of ways that I think we can, they can be used and developed over time, and that m- digital media is going to be introduced more and more into performance. Um, we've looked at everything and developed, for instance, a Romeo and Juliet game that uh, people could then put on their own version of Romeo and Juliet and become a theater producer and director in the course of this game. It was interesting. It wasn't quite, I think, compelling enough for us to release it, but we are looking at gamification. We do take these clips and put them out there in different ways so that people can get an exciting sense of what the show is about. And I think that digitization for educational purposes will be fantastic. I mean... Think about it. You can suddenly see a scene, and you can then meet the actor who's going to talk to you about it. You can click on another button and find out what the director and designer were trying to achieve in that moment. There, there's just a lot of information that can be very elegantly passed on mm-hmm. through digital media. Uh, and you, you, I agree that I think that there is this this elemental quality to theater, but it's hard to ignore that you know the demographics of it is, uh, you know, it is a it is an aging demographic. I mean, how much as part of your mandate, you you arrived uh, as the artistic director at twenty in twenty thirteen. Uh, how much of your personal mandate was to you know uh, activate like more young people to come to the theater? Well, in introducing the bus from Toronto, that was one way that we, you know, the challenges for Stratford are unlike a a theater that's in the middle of Toronto where attracting a young audience comes down to programming a play they might want to see and then they need a subway token. Mm -hmm. Um, What we're talking about is people generally need to plan a little bit more to get to Stratford, and for a lot of them, they didn't have a car. So the bus is a really important bridge there. I think, too, that presenting plays that... um, have a wide variety, you know, of like, for instance, the new play that Kate uh, Hennig put together this year, which is The Last Wife, has a beautiful modern sensibility. It's hilarious, but it's about Kate Parr and Henry VIII. It's about historical figures, but it's totally now in terms of how it's set. I think that's going to appeal to younger audiences. Um, Younger audiences really thrive on Shakespeare, guys. I've got to tell you, it's what keeps me going is Mm -hmm. watching, uh, uh, you know, a young person in high school love Shakespeare, and there's many different ways uh, that we reach out to them and to students, and I think that's really critical. Um, and then there's also the work that we do, like Anne Frank this year, Alice through Looking Glass last year, where we reach out to young people. So I do think, though, that theater, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of planning to be able to come out, and also you get to a certain point in your life where you realize that's what I'm going to do. I think for university students, for people with young families, it's just a bit harder to dedicate that time. That doesn't mean they're not interested. It just means that it's not quite the right time. And I think we should avoid being too ageist about it because I've got to tell you, some of our older audience members are the most open-minded we have. Do you think there are any Shakespeare productions that are just universally appealing like we're talking about modernization and and digitization 
Um, but you said Shakespeare's really popular with kids and with with teenagers. What are what would you say are the most popular plays, and that will you know get people coming out no matter what? Well, you know, um, there are certain plays that he wrote from the perspective of a young person. I'm thinking about As You Like It, Romeo and Juliet, and to some degree Hamlet. I mean, um, here in those characters look around the world that their parents have created, and they wonder, how did you screw this up so badly? How did you make this so bad? And how do I make it better? And uh, those plays have always been really, you know, really connect to younger people. As a matter of fact, there's some people, you know, when they're 16, they are Hamlet. Like, they just totally get what he's about. And then when they turn 50, they think, you know, Hamlet's really a bit of a pill. A bit, you know, what a pain in the butt that guy is. Um, how could he behave so badly? But it doesn't feel that way when you're 16 reading Hamlet. So there are some of these plays which just really connect to um, to people. Lear is interesting because, you know, when you're a young person, you see the world through some of the younger characters in Lear. As you get older, you see the play very differently. You start, you know, I remember seeing, that hit me for the first time when I was in London seeing a production of Lear a couple of years ago and a good friend, an actor here, Peter Donaldson had just died and he, uh, he had played a couple of different parts in Lear and productions I'd worked on and uh, I don't know, maybe that just made me a bit more sensitive but I found myself watching it that night and, and the character of Gloucester is talking about having misjudged his son and blowing it and, and I found myself in tears. I get along very well with my grown son but I just realized I was now understanding that story from a di very different place. So these stories have something that connect with us all the way through our journey from you know being young to being not so young. And so there are ones that specifically appeal more to the young, but I think somebody we all find something in them at every point. Is there, you know, just uh, I'm on the on the topic of Lear again. You know, having that movie digitized, um, and and other and other like museums, for instance, are also digitizing their collections. Right. Is is digitization the future of some of these fine arts? Uh, the future of theater? The future of of galleries and museums? Well, it sure it increases accessibility, right? Because suddenly a collection can be seen around the world. Um, it, there are wonderful things you can do with digitization, and uh, like gamification. Uh, uh, there's ways of participating through dig digitization, and if there, you can find a way of making it more interactive, then I think that's really kind of exciting. Will it totally replace uh, theater? Well, I think for the reasons that I, I think, I don't think so. I think there's something weirdly, not just elemental, but kind of uh, in a... Uh, deep sense, sacred about theater. It, 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 remember, it started out in a religious festival. There's something cathartic about it. You, for some reason, that in a film doesn't do that. It, it, there's a couple of things. First of all, it's the live body in front of you going through something. I don't know what that's about, but it connects. Secondly, it's the audience around you. It's not an accident, I think, that the amphitheaters in Greece were in a, you know, a circle and they represented one-tenth the size of the town so in other words you can tell when they were built what size the community was because they would make it so that over a course of feast days they could get the entire community through that town and the thing about an amphitheater is that you're not just watching the stage you're watching your neighbors your friends on the other side of the stage watching the stage you're conscious of the people around you because it's not like in a movie theater when it's all dark and you can't see anybody around you 
As a matter of fact, if you go into a movie theater and there's no one there and it's just you and the movie, part of you goes, oh, great, and you can spread out your popcorn, put up your feet, put the, you know, it's all yours, and it takes nothing away from the experience. That's not true in a theater. A live theater is better for the experience of the people around you. It is a form of communion. It is a way for a community to decide on values, what they find ridiculous, what they find funny, and what really hits them. And there's something about sharing that with other live bodies, which is very strong. And I, um, I, you know, 150 years ago, when there was no move, there were no movies, there was no radio, there was very few forms of entertainment other than live musical performance or reading. Theaters were enormous. They were enormous. Um, oddly, we don't have one good play from that period. In the hundred years from the time of Sheridan through to Shaw, mm-hmm. you could argue Gerald, uh, Bosico, but really, significantly, there wasn't, isn't one enduring piece. And yet the theaters were 5,000 people big. Mm-hmm. And, and they were a major form of entertainment. I think the theater will be uh, healthier in the future. It may not have the same numbers, but it will deeply connect to audiences, and I think important things are going to be said in the theater and expressed by the way of plays in the years ahead. Will they change? Of course they will. Will they go away? No, they won't. Great. Well, well thanks so much for, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Real pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at mcclains.ca and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and BeyondPod. We'd love it if you wrote us a review or a comment on iTunes, or if you'd like, you can tell us your thoughts about what we talked about with a comment on our site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast on The Hill or our books podcast, The Bibliopod. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J and me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.